Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com as well. S.C. and Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Glad to be with you on a, uh, looks like a beautiful Monday morning here in on the East Coast. Lots of stuff, obviously, we're going to get into. we got every Monday morning from pretty much here until deep into the month of January. It's going to be Monday morning quarterback day and a reaction over everything that happened in the National Football League. And the one thing that stood out to me outside of my picks for last week, which were absolutely terrible, um, I'm not going to spend much time talking about it because it's just going to make me mad. But looking back at this past week in the NFL, and I've said all along, you get into the first couple weeks of the National Football League season, and it really is difficult to predict what's going to happen from game to game. And because of that thought process, you tend to think that not everything that you see is exactly the way you see it. And sometimes if you overanalyze it and you think that, all right, just because things are expected to be this way and things don't work out that way in the first couple of weeks of the National Football League season, then there's going to be an upset. So you're overthinking it um, compoundly almost to a point like it's a credit card. You know, the compound interest that exists on a credit card, you know, is a similarity to the way that you are compoundly over analyzing what's going to happen in a given week in a National Football League. And the thing that stands out the most about this, and I'll tell you, there is a huge difference in that quote that you hear on the DraftKings commercial, where, you know, for legalized sports betting, when they say, you know, life's better when you have skin in the game. I'll tell you, man, actually having money on games every single week is one of the more stressful things that, you know, one can deal with. Now, granted, I'm not going to, you know, talk from a person that's claiming to be, you know, a compulsive gambler. That are people that have a lot bigger, you know, financial problems when it comes to, uh, you know, their addiction to betting. So, you know, this is not to, you know demean or make light of anybody that has some serious gambling problems. But when you, when you know that your bets are just pretty much going to get cashed, uh, I tell you, it makes for more of a stressful experience when you're betting on national football league games. But you know, what I wanted to start out by talking about is the, really the story that stood out to me this entire weekend didn't happen until, you know, the game between the chargers and the Buffalo bills this week and it was something that, by the way that it happened, is really the reason for the reaction as opposed to what actually happened. And we see, that especially in the past 10 years in the National Football League, many teams or many players that played for, you know, in some cases, shorter periods of time. There's been players that have played in a league for three, four years and decide to call it quits. So it's not a knock you know, if you decide that you want to get out of the game a little bit early. Your your health is obviously very important, but most importantly, um, your your ability to you know exist in a very productive way for years upon years is is something that every single athlete has to factor in, not just pro football players. So I don't have any issue with any player that decides that, you know, today is the last day they're going to play or they're going to retire. It doesn't matter if you're 
25, 28, 30, or 40. You know, you have one opportunity in the National Football League as an athlete to compete at the highest level, and nobody else should make that decision for you. That should be a decision that you make yourself, and once you're comfortable with it, you have to deal with the repercussions of that decision. So I don't have any issue with Fonte Davis retiring, but I tell you, he really made this all about him, and he did it in a ridiculously selfish way. Once again, no issue with any pro football player deciding that they're going to hang up the spikes and they're going to move on to the next phase of their life. But when you have a group of 53 players, not counting the coaches, not counting the fans, not counting every single person that is involved with that organization, and you make a commitment, a commitment that starts with OTAs, a commitment that continues through training camp and the preseason games, and you make it to the start of the National Football League season, you have plenty of opportunity to make it clear that you want to move on to the next phase of your life. Now, I'm not saying that you can't retire in the middle of the season, but the decision that Vontae Davis made to announce his retirement at halftime during the Bills game against the Los Angeles Chargers was pretty similar to Alex Rodriguez and Scott Boris's decision to opt out of Alex Rodriguez's contract in the middle of the 2000 World Series between the Boston Red Sox and the Colorado Rockies. That was a very clear bad decision on A-Rod's part not to opt out, but the choice of it to make the World Series, which doesn't involve the Yankees, doesn't involve Alex Rodriguez, but to make the World Series about him and his decision to be a free agent. Vontae Davis said the hell with this game that's going on between the Los Angeles Chargers and the Buffalo Bills, a game which, by the way, they're losing 28-3. to So he's quitting at a number of different levels. Says, hey, I don't have any belief in this Buffalo Bills team that I just signed with as a free agent. We got blown out in week one. It looks like we're on our way to be blown out in week number two. So I don't want to play for a losing team, so I'm quitting. On top of that, I want to make sure that my retirement becomes such a national story because of the manner that I chose to do it. And and I don't think it was fair to his teammates. Anybody that's within that organization, from the teammates to the coaching staff to the fans to the media, has every right to be pissed off at Vontae Davis for the way that he handled that situation. And once again, this isn't a matter of, you know, he retired, so there's something wrong with that. Players retire in the National Football League all the time. Now, Vontae Davis could have announced his retirement at the beginning of the game, and it wouldn't have been as big of a story. He could have announced his retirement after the game, and it wouldn't have been as big of a story. But the perception here is that Vontae Davis wanted this to be about him, wanted to make sure that he went out with a big story behind what it is that he's choosing to do. But in reality, he's just one of many pro football players that decide to end their career, in some cases early, but a lot of times for the betterment of their future and for their health. So this is a terrible decision. He quit on his team in so many fronts, basically saying, hey, not only am I you know, going to walk away from my team, but I'm going to announce my retirement at halftime and make the story more about me than it is about my team. Now, he wasn't a member of the Buffalo Bills for a long time, so 
apparently there is no love lost or will be no love lost going forward between the player and the organization. But I tell you, it's a ridiculously selfish move to handle it in a manner that he chose to. And honestly, out of everything that happened in the National Football League this week, that's the one thing that kind of stood out to me. You know, I, th I thought you saw, you know, some well-played games. You saw, yes, yeah, some upsets. Uh, and obviously, going back to my picks, and like I said, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about them because, you know, anybody can make picks. Anybody can make sports bets. You know, if you want to do it legally in a state that it's legalized or you want to go through a bookie like I was doing for several years before sports betting became legal in a state in New Jersey. You know, the only game that I got right was the one upset that I predicted. And I thought the Tampa Bay Buccaneers would beat the Philadelphia Phil uh, Philadelphia Eagles. Not not in a way where I think the Bucs are a better team than the Eagles. But on one week with the momentum coming off of last week and the Eagles perhaps still relishing in their Super Bowl victory, I thought it was a very good opportunity for Tampa Bay to play well at home. And Ryan Fitzpatrick backed up his week one performance with another solid performance in week two. In fact, became the only quarterback in the history of the National Football League to throw for 400 yards and four touchdowns in consecutive games. And think about all the greats that have played. And think about the changed game that we have where it's so quarterback-centric, where quarterbacks are throwing for 300-plus yards just about every single game. The amount of yardage that's going through the air as opposed to the amount of yards that, that were, were, were going through the ground, it has continues to go up every single year. And it's amazing that we had not had a quarterback throw for 400 yards in consecutive games with four touchdowns. And that, obviously, is something that Ryan Fitzpatrick, of all people, is the quarterback that is be able is able to make that statement and claim, even if other quarterbacks end up doing it down the road, he is the first one in National Football League history to do that. And I found out amazing. Now, if you watched the Giants and the Cowboys game last night, there's so many different things you can talk about. And what I try to do on this show is I try to take the focus away from what you're hearing on your regular radio, what you're seeing you know, with these guys that just can't wait to just yap about something. They're going to yap about anything so they don't put any thought behind it. I, I believe something was set up in last night's game that I think every team that's facing the New York Giants should do going forward. And obviously, it doesn't bode well for the Giants, who start the season at 0-2. and two. A stat was put up yesterday, and 88% of the teams since the year of 1990 that started the season 0-2 and two did not make the playoffs. So the Giants are in a rough situation. But I think for every team going forward that's matching up against the New York Giants and their offense should pretty much do what the Dallas Cowboys did yesterday. Now, you think if the Giants are going to beat you in a certain way, it's probably mid-range passing. It's, you know, an establishment of the running game with Saquon Barkley. That's the reason that the Giants took him with the number two overall pick. He obviously makes them better being on the football field. So the Giants' use of Barkley, whether it's running the football, whether it's a short passing game, is going to have a very big impact on what you see from the defense. The one thing that used to work for the Giants years ago and could be pointed to as one of Eli Manning's strengths is the you know long passing game, to throw the ball deep downfield, to extend the field, to throw the ball long range down the field to your speed receivers. 
Now, I think if the Giants are ever going to get back on track, they have to establish something similar to that. But, obviously, you have the quarterback who's been playing, you know, average to below average to poor, depending on your perception of what you're seeing. Any offensive line, which continues to be thrown out there as weak and underperforming. So those two things, if Manning's not playing well and the offensive line is not very strong, you don't expect to have the time for Eli Manning to be able to take seven steps back and throw the ball deep downfield. So if I'm the opposition, if I'm going up against the New York football giants and I'm looking to beat them going forward, which I think they're going to lose a lot more games than they're going to win unless something changes immediately. And if I'm a defense, if I'm going up against this Giants offense, I'm going to rush the passer, not just with my front four or my front seven. I'm going to send all types of different stunts. I'm going to get myself in the backfield to continue to make matchup problems for the Giants offensive line. And if you saw, especially in the first half of the game against the Dallas Cowboys yesterday, it seemed like the Cowboys always had one too many guys rushing the passer that could be picked up. Now, I thought it was a bad job by the offensive lineman not being able to pick up every player. But in some cases, it was receivers, it was tight ends, it was running backs who all had opportunities to maybe throw that little chip block in, which could have made things a little easier for Eli Manning. But the one thing that was established is if you have too many people coming in for Eli Manning and the Giants to be able to cover, there's no way he's going to be able to throw the ball deep downfield. So you're going to be able to do some of the things that the Dallas Cowboys did to the New York Giants last night. So if if I'm the Giants, sure, there's a number of reasons why I could be thinking doom and gloom as we're on Monday, the 17th day of September. And if you you throw everything with the backdrop of the season last year and how it spiraled out of control, and next thing you know, they were sitting there, what, 1-9, 1-10, and it was just a complete disaster you're looking at the possibility of this happening again. And I don't know if there is any positive to see in sight. I don't know how, if you're the offense of the New York Giants, how you're able to prepare for this type of rush. Now, if you're going to, let's say, hey, have Manny take three steps back and just bomb the ball out to OBJ or to Ingram or to Sterling Shepard, Maybe, maybe there's a chance you could catch a big play here and there. But if you're, from a defensive standpoint, if you're going to come after the quarterback with multiple players and just about blitz on every down, I find it very hard or very difficult to see the Giants getting any sort of consistency in our offense. And for two weeks, you haven't seen it come close. And I know you could talk about the skill position players that the Giants have from OBJ to Barkley to all the guys they have on offense that obviously without Olivier Vernon is, you know, been part of the reason why their defense hasn't been as strong. He's a huge difference maker out there. Uh, you know, I know it's easy to overreact off of one game. And I know a lot of people like to do that. And I know a lot of people like to say, hey, zero and two, there's no chance of making the playoffs. While that may be true. I think it's very urgent that the Giants do something about their offensive scheme. Now, I don't know if they're going to go to a full, you know, block mentality. I mean, I don't know how you run an offense when you're essentially on defense. And that's what the Giants pretty much are. 
their offense is a defensive offense because what, what they're trying to do is make sure that everybody that's coming at them is blocked before they go on the offensive. And if you break down the simplistic terms of the words offense and defense, offense you know, means that you have control. Defense is on the defensive to react to what you do offensively. The Giants have it the exact opposite. They have a very defensive offense where their reaction is, what are they going to do to stop the defense that's coming after them as opposed to being on the offensive and controlling the flow of the game and having the defense react to them? So that's all i got to say about that. We're going to move into the world of baseball, a couple different things that happened over the weekend. And just a reminder, if you're interested, you, know, you can be part of the program, you can... Uh, Call in the number is 732-364-3598. And uh, Cricky1 says, smoke a Newport, bruh. Hey, sure, man, whatever, man. Smoke one yourself. Um, next thing we're going to get into is a couple things that stood out to me this weekend watching baseball. We talked about the pennant races on Friday. I think they're going to, especially in the National League, as you get close to the last couple weeks of the season, it's going to be a lot um, It's going to be worth watching. You know, the Philadelphia Phillies are in a very difficult situation as they're kind of on a free fall. I think it's pretty safe to say that if they're going to make it to the playoffs this year, they need to play the best baseball that they've played all season right now. You look at the Dodgers, who are only a half game behind the Colorado Rockies. you got the race in the central division of the National League between the Cubs and the Milwaukee Brewers and the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, the Cardinals have cooled off. If the season were to end today, the Cardinals are actually in a tie with the Dodgers for the second wildcard spot. So that big run that the St. Louis Cardinals had once they changed managers has kind of curtailed a little bit. It's not really that big of a deal. Um, they've kind of mellowed out. still think they're a good team. I still think they make it to the postseason. They have the ability to make a pretty big run. But, you know, you look at a team like the Philadelphia Phillies, who are one of the darlings in the National Leagues, a league along with the Atlanta Braves, and, you know, their season, as good as it's been, seems like it's going to end in a little bit of a disappointment. Now, I don't know what you want to point to as being the reason why the Philly season has kind of gone from being a potential NL East division champion season or a wild card season, or at the very least being in the mix of the last couple weeks of the season, to a point where, you know what? They, they should finish over 500. They should look at this season as a very positive thing. And as the offseason gets set and they're getting ready to take build on season number two with Gabe Kapler as the manager, expectations should be raised a lot for the 2019 season. The one thing that has stood out to me about the Philadelphia Phillies all season, which has been a disappointment to me, because I would have expected a team that, you know, would expect to be fundamentally sound. I look at Gabe Kapler as a guy that stresses fundamentals. But the lack of interest that the Philadelphia Phillies have had in putting a solid defensive team on the field. You would figure if you're you know, using your analytics correctly, you try to get yourself in a proper position to be able to catch the ball, you would want to have the optimum players that are out there to give you the best chance of making that catch and making that play on the field defensively. And the Phillies have really put no emphasis towards defense in the construction of their roster whatsoever. 
And, you know, when they made the trade for Justin Bohr of the Miami Marlins, I thought it was a good trade. And I think a lot of people agreed with me when they looked at how the acquisition of Justin Bohr to have that left-handed bat off the bench to come up with a big hit in the postseason was a very solid comparison to Matt Stairs of 2008. And I agree with that. And I thought it was a pretty good comparison that a lot of people made. Now, Justin Bohr being a first baseman and playing in some cases every day, or at least the majority of the time against right-handed pitching, was something that, I, I don't know, very few baseball insiders would have expected to be a way that Justin Bohr would have been used. Now, Bohr grades as an average to below average first baseman as a defensive player, but not only that, the ramifications of the rest of the Phillies' offense you know, makes it a better offensive team, but also makes it a very bad defensive team. Carlos Santana is not a third baseman. He's played a, he played a couple games there years ago with the Cleveland Indians when he was also a catcher. You know, I don't. I mean, I don't know if the Phillies considered putting Carlos Santana back behind the plate, but to move him to third base, to move as Dribble Cabrera back to shortstop, where he was an absolute disaster last year with the New York Mets. It was very clear that he didn't have the reaction time and agility and stamina to be able to play shortstop at the major league level for an extended period of time. So the Phillies are continuing to put themselves in a very negative position defensively. And not only that, they have two outfielders that once the season started this year were already out of position. Reese Hoskins was always a first baseman. You throw him in left field. Adubel Herrera was a middle infielder in the Texas Rangers organization. I know he was drafted in a Rule 5 draft by the Phillies a couple years ago, and they made him a center fielder, and that's what he was supposed to be. But he's another guy that's out of position. And I don't know how much the Philadelphia Phillies' defense has impacted their performance in the last couple weeks to month. But I think it's something that at some point rears its ugly head. And when you have a series of teams in a particular league that are all competing for a similar wildcard spot or a similar division title, little things like that end up making a difference. And the Phillies, they should be applauded for the season that they've had. They should be expected as the years go by in 2019 and beyond to be considered a favorite. In not just the National League East, but the National League. But I wonder how much they've sold themselves short by not putting any emphasis on their defense. Now, I understand they're using their analytics. They're probably one of the more analytically sound teams in all Major League Baseball. And a lot of that has come from Gabe Kapler. Some of that has come from Mike Klintak and his past experience with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. So the goal, or at least the thought process behind not necessarily caring about having good defensive players, if you have the proper defensive positioning, it shouldn't matter how good of a defensive player that player is, because the ball is going to be hit right where the player is. And if the ball is hit right at you, there's a pretty good chance, or there should be more of a chance that a player can make a play that's hit right to. Now, the Phillies have struggled defensively this year. They've struggled defensively since the beginning of the season. So this isn't something that all of a sudden has popped up. But I'd, I'd be very concerned going forward and not necessarily saying that the Phillies should have an offseason and should be emphasizing defense. But I think they should look at the ability of a defensive player, that player's range, that player's ability to save runs as opposed to giving up runs. 
And if they're looking to upgrade one aspect of the team, I think offensively they're solid. I think their starting rotation is very good. And I even think their bullpen is much better than I thought it would be, you know, when this season started. So, you know, if they emphasize defense, then maybe this is a team that could go on a similar run that they did, which started in 2007 and ended in 2011 when they won five straight National League East titles. Now, something stood out to me in one of the games last week with the Mets playing the Marlins in a doubleheader. Seems like it was a pretty methodical game, a game that most people that were following could care less about. Probably the only people that were watching the game were Mets fans and Miami Marlins fans, but the Mets had a dramatic come-from-behind win with two outs in the ninth. Michael Conforto hit a home run to tie the game, and Todd Frazier ends up hitting a home run to win the game. Now, I don't care about the result of the game. That's not worth talking about. But as Todd Frazier is getting set to step on home plate, home plate umpire Tom Hallion is standing on home plate as well. Now, I looked at it, and I'm like, it's a little bit of a goofy play. I've never seen it happen before. I've never seen an umpire in the fashion of a walk-off to actually stand on home plate, essentially making sure that the player stepped on home plate as they're crossing with a winning run that, you know, is not going to be contested because it's off of a home run. So it's something that I'd never seen before. And at first, it just kind of, I, th- I looked at it and I said, hey, it was funny. But the more I look into it, I remember, and I go back to the ghost of Christmas past, and I think of some of the umpires in Major League Baseball that are known to have more of a hothead. And I think of a Bob Davidson. I think of a Joe West. You know, I think of other umpires. Um, you know, you think about it now, there's a handful of guys that exist. Uh, Will Little is probably one of the more hot-headed umpires that we have in Major League Baseball right now. But Tom Hallion was amongst that group. And Tom Hallion always stood out by not having a lot of patience with people questioning his strike zone, being kind of quick to throw somebody out of the game. And had one of those mentalities that he was taking the game, making it more about him than he was the action on the field. Now, a lot of that went to rest when a video became viral of his interaction with Terry Collins a couple of years ago when Noah Syndergaard was thrown out of the game for throwing behind Chase Utley in a game against the Los Angeles Dodgers at City Field on Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN. Now, the video ended up becoming viral because uh, a, a mic picked up, you know, Terry Collins' reaction and Noah Syndergaard's reaction once Syndergaard was thrown out of the game. And a lot of it focuses on the discussion between, the heated discussion between Terry Collins and Tom Hallian. So Hallian, whose reputation at that point, for some people, may have not been a big deal. But I always looked at him as one of more of the hot-headed umpires and the umpires that were making a game more about himself than the actual game that's on the field. So a lot of that cooled when that video became viral, and it seemed like Hallian can, you know, conducted himself very well. His quote, our asses are in the jackpot, you know, ends up becoming a catchphrase that a lot of people have used, you know, ever since that video came out. And he gets a reputation of being just, hey, I'm the crew chief. I understand you're upset. Let me cool the manager down as he's getting ready to leave the game because he's been thrown out. Now, this situation with the Mets and Todd Frazier 
had to do with Frazier being critical of the umpires just about all season, and it kind of coming to a head in the series against the Miami Marlins. There, there's a dispute over a couple pitches that Frazier had with home plate umpire Dan Bellino. Later on, he ends up getting tossed. And Tom Hallion, as the crew chief, instead of being the person that is able to defuse the situation, like he did when it came down to Terry Collins and Noah Syndergaard and Chase Utley a couple of years ago in New York against the Dodgers, he takes the absolute childish route and makes this about him. And Frazier hits the walk-off home run. And I understand it's an instinctual game. And sometimes our... You know, the blood rushes to our brains and we react in a way that is not necessarily indicative of what we're about. Hallian's first response, instead of doing his job, just basically making sure that the player steps on home plate to walk off the field, he acknowledges that it's Frazier. He acknowledges that... Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Frazier has had a hard time with the umpire and crew that week and Major League Baseball umpires all season. And he makes it about him by standing on home plate and making sure that Frazier steps on the plate. I thought that was a bad move, but once again, proves to me that the cream always rises to the top when you have a feeling about a certain umpire and the way that they act. It may go away for a while, but eventually that true person comes out. And Tom Hallian, who, as, as, a, as a judge of games, I don't think is necessarily the worst umpire, but he has an extremely hot head. He has a temper that gets to him and has been shown to get to him in multiple occasions of the time. And he handled himself absolutely poorly in this particular situation. Next thing I want to get into, you're looking at the Los Angeles Dodgers as they're trying to make a run, getting back in the playoffs. They've won five straight National League West Division titles. And you look at this team and you say, what is it about the Dodgers that allows them, as we hit what is probably the halfway point of the Passball Show today, just a reminder, Passball Show is brought to you by JohnPLA.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Now, you look at the Dodgers and you give them credit because this is a team that for the last several years has made sure that it gets itself to the postseason. Now, it's hard to do. Ask, you know, several teams in Major League Baseball that have had a hard time doing it in back-to-back seasons, let alone the amount of times that the Dodgers have been able to do. You look back at the last several years, you know, they're run that they're on right now started in 2013 when they ended up winning the National League West with manager Don Manning. And Manningly has been was the manager the first three seasons and Dave Roberts has been the manager there for the last three seasons. And what we're kind of getting to is the fact that this team has changed a lot since the first time it made it to the playoffs. So what the, what are the Dodgers doing that's different from other teams? To not only go from a veteran-laden team to a balanced team with younger players and some veteran players, they made some very good moves on the fly, which has certainly helped. They've been extremely lucky when it comes to bringing in guys that are off the scrap heap that nobody else wanted. I mean, you look at Justin Turner, what he's done for them. 
You look at Chris Taylor, what he's done for them over the last couple seasons. This year, it's all about Max Muncy. Max Muncy's got 32 home runs this year, and nobody wanted him last year. So it's something that's involved in the scouting that allows for the organization to bring these players in with the belief that they could overperform. And they've done that over the last several years. You look at Turner, you look at Taylor, and you look at Max Muncy, and you realize that there were certain points where any team could have had him for a simple minor league contract and a prorated portion of the league minimum. So this is what's worked for the Dodgers. But another thing that has helped, they've done a very good job developing players in their farm system. Whether it's Corey Seager, who I know is out for the season, Cody Bellinger, yeah, they continue to bring in young players that not only do they put a lot of emphasis in, but they've focused on making sure that they're bringing in the right type of players, not just from a clubhouse standpoint, but from a performance standpoint. Now, a couple of years ago, they drafted Walker Bueller with their first round draft pick, number 25 overall in the 2015 draft. And Walker Bueller, at age 23, is having a breakout season. And if it wasn't for the likes of a Juan Soto and a Ronald Acuna, you'd be looking at Walker Bueller as a pers- as a player that could very well win the Rookie of the Year award in the National League. Maybe he makes it as a finalist, but it looks pretty obvious like it's going to be either Acuna or Soto. Acuna maybe gets a little bit of an advantage because he's playing for a team that's going to the playoffs, but... Both players are probably leaps and bounds in the credit of those who are going to be making a vote when it comes to the National League Rookie of the Year voting ahead of Walker Buehler. But the Dodgers, as they sit right now and they're trying to get themselves in a position where maybe they could overtake the Colorado Rockies, maybe they could slip in as a wild card team, are, are doing it with a starting pitching staff that didn't have Clayton Kershaw for a certain amount of the season. Didn't have it. Didn't have Alex Wood of 2017. Alex Wood has made more starts than any other pitcher for the Dodgers. He has been okay. He's serviceable, but he's certainly not the pitcher that he was last year. Rich Hill was always got blister problems. You know, you know, it's it's a, a flick of a coin or flip of a coin when he's going to go on to disable us for a blister problem again. He's going out there throwing competitive starts. Ross Stripling was on a disabled list earlier this year. He has had a breakout season. So the Dodgers have actually used seven pitchers this year who have made 12 or more starts for them during a regular season. And every single one of them has contributed to a certain extent. Now, Kenta Maeda has been pitching out of the bullpen. The Dodgers seem to have a little bit of a dearth when it comes to starting pitchers, may not necessarily have that ace to go alongside Clayton Kershaw, but a guy who has certainly taken a huge step to become that ace or that 1B that you're going to have in your starting rotation is Walker Bueller. And I don't I don't think there's any um, you know, trick to the, to the rule that I think he's going to be a legitimate number one. Now, the Dodgers after this season have some moves to make. They have some consideration to make. Some consideration is going to be made for them. When it comes to the possibility of Clayton Kershaw opting out of his contract and becoming a free agent. But once again, what the Dodgers and what kind of separates the Dodgers from a lot of other organizations is they have never necessarily gone all in. 
Now, you can say you disagree with that statement. They went out there and they traded for Manny Machado last year. They traded for you, Darvish. It seems like when the trading deadline comes, they seem to be most inclined to make that big move. But they've been able to make those big moves by holding on to a lot of talent. A lot of that has to be credited to, to their scouting and development. But it seems like, and you look back at the St. Louis Cardinals for years upon years, and I know they've come back to the forefront because of the success they've had this season. And they always seem to have players that are coming up through their system, regardless of where they stand in their process of expectations and expecting to win. The Dodgers seem to be doing it better than most. You know, the New York Yankees, you look at them, they seem to, seem to do it better than most. But there are also a lot of teams in Major League Baseball that have to take that step back to take a step forward. they got to take a step back to take two steps forward over the course of the next several seasons. And that seems to be the philosophy that is reigning towards the forefront in Major League Baseball. Now, I say for every particular team, it depends on your front office structure. It depends on the players that you have on your 25-man roster. It depends on the players that you have in the minor leagues and up and coming. And it depends on the strength of your scouts of how you're going to operate your baseball team. Now, what people want to do, and this is another thing that's frustrated me over the last several years, is everybody wants to put baseball into a cookie cutter or make it a carbon copy of every single team. Be more like the Astros or be more like whatever team won the World Series last year. Every team should take a blueprint of what they've done and they should do the exact same thing. I think baseball, what makes it such a great game is you could see you could succeed in so many different ways. You could have success by emphasizing veterans, which a lot of people don't want to do right now. But if you look at what the Dodgers have done and what has allowed for the Dodgers to be good is they always seem to have those right veterans that are sitting around in that clubhouse. Whether they're playing a lot or not playing a lot, they have a very good impact. And that's the one thing in baseball that I think we've gotten away from. Teams that are trying to rebuild are making it mostly about the scouting and the drafting and the bringing in of the good young players who you're going to end up building your team around. But if you look at every good team, even the Astros of last year, Carlos Beltran may not have made the biggest difference on the field with his numbers. But to have a veteran like that in that locker room, along with a Brian McCann, that was able to help these younger players as they're playing in big games and making a run towards a World Series championship, it seems like it's almost frowned upon now. A team that stinks right now. The thought process is, hey, get rid of every veteran, play all young players, and all of a sudden these young players are going to grow and become young stars. Baseball should be about the best mix of players that you could possibly put together. It doesn't seem like a lot of a lot of fans see it that way, number one. But most scarily, like what's scaring me the most about this is the possibility that there's teams in Major League Baseball that are feeling there's only going to be one way to build a team. And if it is, you're going to see a lot more teams tanking it in the upcoming seasons. You're going to see a lot more teams saying, hey, things don't look well for us for this year, so I'm going to get rid of every single veteran player that we have on a team, trade them for something, which, by the way, when you're just dumping off players, the team that's on the other side that's trading for the players understands you're just trying to dump them. 
So they're not willing, in most cases, to give you something that's at the top of their farm system. What you end up getting back in deals like this are usually players that could maybe be a 25th man, could maybe be the 12th arm in your bullpen. You're not getting players that you're going to be able to build your team around going forward. Now, in some cases, it might make more sense to hold on to a veteran player when the return of what you're going to be able to get for that player is not very good. You know, you have some players that are very good when it comes to being mentors. You have some players that have the reputation of being able to work well with younger players. And if they're on board with the process of what you're looking to do in a rebuild, it might in some cases make sense to leave some of those veteran players around. But what the Dodgers have done, what the St. Louis Cardinals have done, and I know they have had a couple seasons that haven't gone their way. The New York Yankees had a season where they didn't make the playoffs and they made all those moves at the trading deadline. You know, sometimes, you know, it's not a guarantee that you're going to make the playoffs every single season. But if you look at what all these teams have in common, it's a very good balance of young players coming up through the system, but also veterans that get it. Veterans that know, hey, they may be a, a starting player on this team for the next two or three seasons, but after that, they may be, you know, maybe have sold or have been sold on becoming a reserve or a role player going forward. But I think Walker Bueller is a guy to watch out on, especially when it comes to the postseason this year. I know he's probably on a little bit of an innings limit, and the Dodgers, if they're going to make a run in the postseason, are certainly going to have to manage that. And I think they will be able to with the amount of pitchers they have that are capable of starting, but also the amount of pitchers that are going to have an impact on their potential postseason roster. But what the Dodgers have to do is the same thing they've done over the last five seasons, and that's get into the playoffs. Last year was a lot easier for them because they had that 43-7 and seven stretch. But now they're going to be in a dogfight. They're going to be in a dogfight with the Rockies. They're going to be in a dogfight with the Brewers and the Cardinals when it comes to one of those two wildcard spots. We'll see how it ends up working out. But kudos to the Dodgers. Um, and maybe Walker Buehler doesn't have as much of an impact on the postseason this year because of said innings limit. He's a pitcher I'll watch out for next year. I think he's a guy that can certainly become a perennial all-star, can certainly become a pitcher that the rest of the Dodgers staff kind of gravitates towards and is built around. So the last thing I wanted to get into today is a little bit about David Wright. And there was a play that he made years ago um, in a game, and I'm trying to think who the opponent was. It might have been like a weird game. I think they were playing like Seattle or something. But the bottom line is the game had no uh, playoff implications. It wasn't uh, against a rival. So the moment of the actual play, was not what you know you, you would want to see in a spotlight. If you look back at the catch that Derek Jeter made in that game against the Red Sox where he makes the catch on the field and his momentum carries him into the crowd and he ends up you know busting his face a little bit when he hits his head on a chair, obviously got a positive reaction. You know, Jeter's looked at, hey, this is a guy that you know we know is a gamer. He's given every single thing he's got to try to get to the ball. And he risks his own health. Now, I look at this play that David Wright made. And it was one that I remember seeing, but I don't remember a lot of attention being thrown towards it. This is a guy that risked himself probably a little bit more than Jeter. You could make a case that Jeter you know, could have probably tried to slow down a little bit once he caught the ball. 
but Wright goes full force diving into the crowd, you know, pretty much putting himself in as much of a risk of his health as Jeter did, but a play that doesn't get the credit that it deserves. I think, and this is no biasness towards David Wright or against Eric Jeter, it was a much better play. It was a more incredible play to actually have the fans that were in the spots where they were potentially even hanging out on the, onto the field a little bit for Wright to risk himself and just dive into the stands to make that catch, which he did, I thought was a more incredible catch than what Jeter made. Now, Jeter's was more on the national spotlight. It was an ESPN game. It was against the Boston Red Sox. It was a, you know, a game that drew a lot more national attention. Now, unfortunately, a game between the Mets and the Seattle Mariners is not going to do that. So I guess my question is, if Jeter's catch happened on less of a national forum, would it be considered as big of a play or as exciting of a catch or as well-known of a play that exemplifies what many people believe Derek Jeter is about? If that game happened in an interleague game in Minnesota, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, in uh, let's say in Milwaukee against the Brewers, would it have gotten the same attention? Would it have gotten the same attention just because it was Derek Jeter? Now, I understand why the right play doesn't stand out. Because Mets, Mariners, nobody cared about the result of the game. Um, obviously, it wasn't nationally televised. wasn't a rivalry game. Those are all things I understand. And I get why people reacted the way they did for Jeter's catch and didn't react the way they did for Wright's catch. But... I just want to put the two catches next to each other and analyze which one was better than the other. You know, Derek Jeter made that play when he was several steps on the field. I know he covered a lot of ground. Not every shortstop would have been able to make that play. I agree. He, he, it was an outstanding play. There's no way you could take anything away from it. But he caught the ball several steps on the field before he ended up making it into the crowd. And it didn't look like he slowed down at all to try to avoid it. Ends up, you know, jumping into the crowd, hitting his head, comes back with the with the blood, ends up having to leave the game. He's lauded as a hero. David Wright jumps into the stands, not just, you know, taking a couple steps, getting close to the, you know, the stands and jumping in, but literally going full force, full speed, diving with no regard for himself or his well-being, and makes that catch. So I think the right catch was more impressive. It was a better play. But when it comes to the grand scheme of things, it wasn't made with the game on the line. It wasn't made against a rival. It wasn't made on a national TV. So, you know, you can have your own opinion about it, but I think David Wright's catch was better than Derek Jeter's catch. Big recap of the show today, talked about Monte Davis quitting, and not just the fact that he should be looked down upon for retiring for International Football League, because I don't believe in that at all. I think, you know, pro football players put themselves and their health in jeopardy, and you look at all the stuff that's happening with the suicides and the CTE, so I don't blame any player for deciding that they want to get out at any moment, but Monte Davis had a chance through OTAs, through his signing with the Buffalo Bills, through preseason, through the actual games in the preseason, 
and up to the start of the season when the Buffalo Bills constructed their 53-man roster. If this was something that he wanted to do, he would have had plenty of time to walk away. To do it, not just during the regular season, but at halftime, essentially walking away and quitting on his team was a terrible statement and was not very you know, respectful to his teammates or his fans and basically makes himself look like I wanted to make the statement about me. I wanted my retirement to stand out more than other players. I'm going to do it in halftime of a game where, by the way, my team's getting blown out and losing 28 to three and about to start the season zero and two. You know, I think of the Giants, and there is a blueprint that pretty much is set if you're going to beat the New York football Giants week in and week out. And I would expect more teams to be, uh, you know, very insistent and blitzing and causing a lot of havoc up in the front because the Giants offensive line has struggled. But most importantly, in the game against the Dallas Cowboys, they struggled in being able to stop the extra rushers or the extra players that the Dallas Cowboys were bringing in. So if, if I'm going up against the New York Giants week in and week out, I would keep you know, as much pressure as you can on the quarterback and on the offensive line and up in the front and trust the Giants, even though they have guys like OBJ and Ingram and Sterling Shepard and Saquon Barkley. I would wait until you get beat a couple times before I consider doing anything different and not rushing the passer 100%. Tom Hallian. A little bit of a hothead. He's got that reputation. Kind of goes back to the forefront. And it's not that like he yelled and screamed or made a spectacle. But he, you know, he ended up making a spectacle of himself when he decides to step on home plate. And basically almost blocked the view of Todd Frazier as he's trying to come in and step on home plate after hitting a walk-off home run. Once again, he's got the reputation for being an umpire that makes it more about him than the game. He got a little bit of less pressure on him with his handling of the viral video what became a viral video when Terry Collins got thrown out of the game when Noah Syndergaard threw behind Chase Utley in a nationally televised game against the Los Angeles Dodgers now the Dodgers I think you know very well run organization you should watch out for a guy like Walker Bueller I don't know how much of an impact he's going to have on a postseason, but he's had a breakout season. He certainly would be a rookie of the year candidate if it wasn't for guys like Ronald Acuna and Juan Soto. But here's a guy going forward. If he doesn't have an impact on the postseason this year, he should be a 1A or an ace type of pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers going forward. David Wright's catch, better than Derek Jeter's catch. We'll be back with you tomorrow. This is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPiello.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.